Welcome to another episode of Sauce in the City. Uh, so I, I apologize for the delay in this being posted. Um, I, for some context, I guess this is both good and bad context, but I recently moved to Austin, which has been a literal breath of fresh air. And uh, of course, in my second week of being there, I had to adopt a dog because, I mean, there really shouldn't be an explanation, but for anyone who's ever been to Austin, you will know how dog friendly, um, the city is. And there's just so many shelters out there. And I was lucky enough to find an absolute angel named Winky. Um, well, that's her name now. And yeah, she's been the best thing to happen this year, to be honest. And God, I'm going to cry. Um, but she's a little sick right now, which is why I hope everyone who's listening to this keeps her, you know, in their thoughts and prayers because I want her to get better as soon as possible because she's my little sweetheart. She's on my lap right now. Um, but before I start crying, I'm going to talk about (laughs) this episode with Jacqueline. I am so honored to have recorded with her. She is so amazing. Obviously, she was on The Bachelor, which is, you know, a little weak spot in my heart. But she's also just such an incredible woman and is in the same line of work that I want to be in and is kicking ass at Duke doing um, research and getting her PhD and just she's a total badass and um, also just a kind empathetic amazing human so I think you'll all really enjoy this episode and definitely check out her podcast a little help for our friends which um, you know we talk about in the episode but um, I did want to quickly mention that this podcast episode uh, um, and any and all content or service available on or through this podcast episode are provided for general non-commercial informational purposes only Um, And they do not constitute the practice of medical or any other professional judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So they should not be considered or used as a substitute for independent professional judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment of a duly licensed and qualified healthcare provider. Um, In case of a medical emergency, you should immediately call 911. And the information that uh, Jacqueline provides in the episode is not a reflection of Duke University. So... Um, I just want to make that clear because, you know, again, I'm not even nearly licensed professional and um, Jacqueline's currently doing work under under university. So that was just a little PSA. And without further ado, here is Jacqueline. and welcome to another episode of Sauce in the City. Today, I am so, so, so excited to be here with Jacqueline Trumbull, who is a therapist actually pursuing a PhD in clinical psychology at Duke University and also happened to be on The Bachelor, which 
as people know, is um, a favorite of mine. So Jacqueline, thank you so much for taking the time to be here virtually. I really appreciate it and I'm excited to talk to you. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Zoe. I'm excited to talk some mental health and baby bachelor. <laughs> Definitely. So before I dive into um, you know, everything that I have, all the questions, I, I was wondering if you could start off by introducing yourself, like telling me a little bit about where you're from, where'd you go to school, what'd you study, basically like what's your story? So I grew up in West Virginia. I went to college at the University of Virginia where I studied philosophy actually. I didn't study psychology there at all. I thought I was going to go into web design and move to New York. Um, and then I realized that was definitely not for me. The New York part was, the web design part was not. So I actually went into a really deep depression and because I was so interested in the topic, having experienced it. And um, my mother was a psychiatrist, so it was kind of already in the family. I decided I really wanted to be a therapist. So I scrapped all my plans. I moved home with my parents. I took undergrad courses in psychology, um, worked in, in New York at Mount Sinai for a while, and now I'm getting my PhD. Um, and my primary interest is uh, is borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. So I'm a cluster B PD person, but also, you know, totally interested in anxiety, depression, etc. That's awesome. I mean, obviously, I'm interested in mental health as well and pursuing the route of getting a master's in social work with the hopes of eventually, you know, having a private practice of my own or who knows at this point, but it's definitely a topic oh, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Um, hopefully, I mean, I'm still submitting the applications, but we'll, we'll see. And I think one thing that I think is pretty interesting and and the more people I talk to, the more common it, I find I, it is, is like the, the interest in pursuing something that you've experienced, whether personally or, you mm -hmm. know, on a secondary scale. Like I also suffer from depression. I lost my best friend to suicide and – it's weird how we gravitate towards those things that are so personal to us. It's almost like this subconscious part of us that wants to, you know, learn more about it. So I was wondering if you, from a more like, this is me just like making theoretical statements, but, at, you know, having um, done research and actually taking classes on that, is that a, like a legitimate thing that you know of? Oh, totally. Yeah, we call it me-search. Um, searching, searching about the self. Totally. I mean, it, how could you not, if you go through something as traumatic and terrible as depression or, or any other disorder, I mean, depression is one though, that causes a lot of rumination and a lot of, you kind of get trapped in the maze of your own head, thinking about the self, thinking about your depression. Why can't I do certain things? Who am I? You know, all these identity questions come up. And so, um, you get thinking about that long enough and, it, it's not surprising that you'd want to cure yourself. You become interested in the disorder itself. You want to help other people. Um, but it can manifest in other ways. I mean, I, I don't have borderline personality disorder. Um, and I hope I don't have narcissistic personality disorder. But um, my interest in, in personality disorders developed because of a relationship I had with someone who I would say clearly did have NPD. And so, you know, so that's another kind of me search. It's more it's more like he search i'm i'm researching him in some ways but yeah we, yeah we take inspiration from our own experience for sure that's so interesting and i think 
one thing I actually was curious about, um, because it's, it, I say it's funny. That's probably the incorrect word, but in hindsight, looking back, it's, it's interesting when I, when I first started, you know, battling my own, I guess, psychological issues per se, I kind of self-diagnosed myself with borderline personality disorder. Part of it was probably because I just watched um, um, Girl Interrupted and I was like, oh yeah, I get mood swings. Mm -hmm. But the more I learn about it, the more I realize that it was just bouts of depression and ultimately what manifested into a really bad depression in 2018. But I think there's a lot of misconceptions about a, the difference between borderline personality disorder and bipolar disorder, specifically when you hear comedians or, uh, well, I said comedians, but I'm thinking of Pete Davidson or other public figures coming out and talking about it. Um, I guess what is the difference between a personality disorder and a psychological disorder? Well, a personality disorder is a lot more persistent and pervasive than a than a, another psychological disorder. So depression is something that visits you. Personality disorder is your home. It's who, I mean, it, it doesn't have to remain who you are. Um, it's not, it doesn't encapsulate your entire personality or anything like that, but it's much more rigid. It, it's much more long lasting. It, um, it, it's, you know, it's kind of like if you have, if you have depression or even or bipolar disorder, then that's going to affect your relationships um, because you're unmotivated. It, it makes you a little bit selfish because you can't extend help to other people because all of your resources are going into yourself and mm-hmm. into survival. And so that kind of thing will affect relationships. With BPD, it's like that trouble with relationships is always there. That's one of the defining features of the disorder. A lot of identity disturbance. So just fundamentally not knowing who they are and experiencing this chronic emptiness, chronic loneliness. Um, It's not going to go away with medication, although medication can help in some instances. A lot of what the medication would help are the mood symptoms. Um, So it might level uh, level some of the depression, but, you know, I mean, bipolar disorder, we've got really good medication treatments, for instance, and that will kind of, that will really, really reduce those heavy mood swings. And then things like relationships will go back to normal. Identity will go back to normal. It's not quite the same with a personality disorder, which is literally how you function in your social world and in, in your own body. That's so interesting. I actually had no idea. I, but that there was a difference or I knew, I mean, I obviously knew there was a difference, but I thought it was more of like the level of severity as opposed to Mm -hmm. personality versus psychological. So I guess, is there a medical reason behind personality disorders or is it more of like, you know, a nature versus nurture question? Oh, it depends. There are, biological I I think actually narcissism has a genetic component that's quite strong um I don't I mean so personality disorders are in three classes there and so there's cluster a cluster b and plus cluster c and I study cluster b which um they're quite different. So cluster A personality disorders are kind of odd and eccentric. So you get dis- disorders like schizotypical, 
gets a typical personality disorder, which is characterized by magical thinking, very few relationships. Um, schizoid, which is really no interest in relationships whatsoever. Um, and then cluster B is much more kind of mood. Um, that's where you get antisocial personality, narcissistic personality, histrionic, and borderline. And then cluster C is more like dependent, avoidance. Um, so they're, they're really, really different. So there's no real ideological um, source for, for all of them. But they do often have genetic components, but then there's going to be some sort of origin story, typically in early development, yeah. that kind of sets it off. And, and I will say, like, borderline personality disorder has a big nurture component, but you typically, this typically arises in people who already are very sensitive. So they're just temperamentally really, really sensitive, and they already experience pretty big emotions. Yeah. I mean, I'm just using Pete Davidson as an example because I, I listened to um I I think it was an interview or a combination of interviews on YouTube recently, and I mean he speaks very openly about experiencing losing you know his dad 9/11, and, and that's as a young kid that's so traumatizing I can't even fathom it. So when you say like has a you know social co- or um, an external component that makes a lot of sense for his story, at least like you know me imagining or um psychoanalyzing that and then I guess what would you know you hear the words sociopath and um psychopath thrown around are those psychological I mean I guess so psycho psychopath has it in the name but are those more like where do those lie this is actually a topic that continues to confuse me because sociopath and psychopath are not terms that you find in the DSM, which the DSM is like the big book where you go for the disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, it will say the disorder and then all the symptoms of it. And there is a disorder called antisocial personality disorder, which is what if you are a psychopath, you will be likely given as your diagnosis. Um, this is one I haven't studied much, although I would love to super interesting. Um, but again, like low empathy, criminal behavior. Um, I, there is some difference between sociopath and psychopath. I, I think it's, I think there, at least like one paper I read discriminated them by saying that psychopaths were already born and sociopaths were created or something like that. So I think psychopaths had like a, a neurological, um, basically their brains look different than other people's do kind of from the get-go. And then sociologists, I mean, sociopaths, um, there's more of a nurture thing going on, but I really, really don't know. And I, I never really know whether those terms are being used clinically or well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think of the way the, the article I read, which explain the nuance and then I actually just kind of remembered Mm -hmm. um and it it kind of is in line with my next question which is well first of all did you see the did you watch the undoing I did I just did I've been here one day (laughs) and what were your thoughts because it's funny I have a really good friend who's a therapist and she and I both like loved the ending thought it was great but Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the consensus from just viewers in general was like they were a little disappointed that there wasn't more of like a plot twist so um from the perspective of someone studying you know narcissism and um other personality disorders etc like what were your thoughts 
I, I mean, I don't think they super went into his personality. And so, I mean, can I spoil it at the end? Oh, yeah. I'll okay. add a spoiler. <laughs> Here's okay. a spoiler. <laughs> yeah. So in the end, the murderer was her husband and he had narcissistic personality disorder. So first of all, I mean, I would think that he's probably comorbid with antisocial personality disorder. I, I mean, people with NPD are not very likely to go around killing people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, but these disorders are very, very comorbid. Um, and narcissism is such a spectrum. I mean, all of these are, but narcissism is such a spectrum. It's something that we all have a little bit of in, in all of us. All of that is to say what I liked about it is that when you are with <clears throat> a narcissist, for someone who has NPD, you might not realize it for a very long time because they are dazzling, they are attractive. I don't just mean physically, but I mean they attract you. They can love bomb you, so they make you feel like you have never been loved better by anybody else. You've never been understood more. Um, you've never had, you've never felt more alive. And they are usually or often very good at cognitive empathy. So they're good at knowing what you're thinking and then knowing how to exploit that while being rather low on affect empathy or emotional empathy which is basically they're not necessarily feeling inside what you're feeling but they kind of know in their head what you're feeling and so you can see how that played out in the show where Nicole Kidman I don't remember her name Grace or something Grace yeah okay where Grace keeps she's a therapist she's probably an empath she gets she keeps getting pulled in by this guy Um, Mm -hmm. and seeing the best in him and he's very good at kind of manipulating that side of her and um and yeah and then you know you can see how people with npd are usually very successful um it's it's incredibly adaptive disorder in some ways it makes them very good at certain things and one of those things might be rising to the top of their field because they are dazzling and they do want to be the best and all these things so i i had i had no problem with it yeah yeah I thought it was interesting too because a lot of people or I saw polls that were like if you know if you were dating or do you think it'd be possible to be Nicole Kidman's shoes and miss the signs and a lot of people said no and that's I think that's kind of defeats the purpose like that's the point is that they're Mm -hmm. so good at that manipulation that even someone who has a doctorate in psychology or whatever she has because she's doctor whatever her last name was you know could miss the signs and in fact as you mentioned has that empathy and is trying to like see the best in this this man who she ultimately like in that badass ending like you know right flips the switch on yeah, so she so she has the degree that I'm getting, um, and what I can tell you is that it definitely doesn't make you a mystic. Like it, it doesn't mean that you that you can read other people's minds or that you know exactly what's going on. And you're especially, I mean, this is one of the things that therapy helps you with. Like when it's your own experience, you it's like getting um, it's like being in a cornfield or something. Like there's all there's all these distractions right up to your head, and so you just keep. You, you kind of can't see the bigger picture because it's all you're too trapped in your own kind of reality and when you go to therapy you know that's an objective third person who can look at mm-hmm. your life unemotionally um, you can look at your relationship without the attraction that you feel and you can see kind of the the forest from the trees so it's I think it's 
it's totally realistic that a clinical psychologist could get wrapped into a relationship with a narcissist and we are also trained to see the best in people i mean you can you can hand me a murderer and i'll be like but you know but he's a vegan like yeah he has a really you know he has a kind heart in these ways but he he did this given his background and you know etc cetera, etc cetera, because without that what are we doing we can't just say someone to someone you're you're redeemable you're a bad person They're, yeah congrats like you're welcome there's your diagnosis so she's she's doing what she does best and it just didn't serve her that time yeah i guess this kind of extends on um npd which i think is just so fascinating and under talked about but a i want to know how common is it and B, this is like, this sounds like a silly question, but in actuality, I feel like a lot of people could relate to to this. Like, you know, I mean, I graduated college, I guess, like two and a half years ago now, something like that. And there are a lot of guys who I was with who, looking back, I'm like, wow, they completely manipulated me. But at the same time, it's like, was that just, you know, a guy being a douchebag or was it? narcissistic personality disorder like how do you distinguish the two i love this question so much i'm so glad you answered it i mean asked it um first of all the prevalence rate is I, i'm just looking online honestly but it's it's 6.2 percent it's wow. greater in men so 7.7 for men 4.8 for women i don't think you can necessarily distinguish between npd and just being really manipulated which is why i actually have some pause when i describe my ex-boyfriend as being a narcissist i think he is about as clear of a case as you can get at least in the relation love relationships domain but one thing that often happens is that we for some reason our society has just agreed that we treat our friends well we treat strangers well we treat employees well but we do not treat the people we date well Mm -hmm. especially in the early stages you know if we have an incredibly intimate experience in the first five dates let's say it's totally socially acceptable to just ghost them and never speak to them again and block them and that that is not an acceptable behavior in any other domain and so it can be really difficult to parse out like what is a disorder what is like what is a person who does this chronically versus what is just, he's not that into me. And we've mm-hmm. just, we've just decided it's okay to treat people badly. So, I mean, the different, I mean, it, youth comes in too. Guys in college are not going to be great. Um, we also, young, young women and young men, just by virtue of being young, are often very abusable in the dating realm because they aren't, I don't want to use the word cynical, but they haven't learned how to stand up for themselves. They haven't learned what's normal behavior and what's healthy behavior and what they can realistically expect. And so I, I, I think it's just a recipe for disaster. But I mean, someone with NPD might not have really long lasting friendships, but they might. Um, they may They may say things like, I'm... They, they may talk a really, really big game about what they're going to achieve, but then not actually show any signs of getting there because a narcissist might think that they are too good to have entry-level positions or, you know, do the kind of like me- more menial work required to actually achieve anything in life. 
Um, I mean, gaslighting, I would really look out for. It's just yeah. that exploitation. Yeah. So that, I mean, that. <laughs> but in length of time, I mean, ugh. I don't know. I mean, ultimately, you probably shouldn't be diagnosing someone yourself. Um, but if over time there is this like repeated pattern and you see it kind of in like multiple domains of their life, you might be looking at narcissism more than just being a frat bro. Yeah, that's a good point of like if it manifests in multiple parts of your life as opposed to just in the relationship realm and... Oh, oh, and being mean to servers and interesting and staff. And yeah, because a lot of times narcissists think that they shouldn't have to be surrounded by people who aren't at the absolute height of success or don't have a lot of power. And so they just won't treat people well who don't have a lot of respect and power. Um, and they will feel very entitled to things. So why, you know, asking for special treatment at restaurants and getting very angry when they don't get it. <laughs> Looking for special treatment everywhere, not just from you. That's so wild to me because it is something that's been so normalized, unfortunately. Like, kind of as you said, gaslighting and being mean to servers. Like, those are, um, for context, I I had Lindsay Metzler on my podcast who has oh, a yeah. relationship podcast. And uh, she does those, like, polls which ask, you know, is this a red flag or deal breaker? And some of those things are, like, being nice to waiters and mm-hmm. you know ga- gaslighting and it just it's just so upsetting to me to see how prevalent both of those are in our society now and I hope if anything that comes of this pandemic maybe people will just be kinder yeah and, and maybe people will just kind of be humbled so yeah that's that's what I have to say about narcissism I guess <laughs> um but I do want to segue into your podcast because mm-hmm. Um, I was so excited to hear that you started one that was about mental health. Um, a little help for your friends. Please. What's a little help you? for our friends. For our friends. And so I was hoping if you could, A, you know, just give a little elevator pitch of what it is and B, explain kind of the origin behind it, why exactly you wanted to create a, a mental health podcast that, I mean, I don't want to, like, you know, spoil it, but that um, – <laughs> gives people advice on how to treat others who are having psychological battles. Totally. Um, so you, yeah, so you kind of gave the elevator pitch for me, but basically, <laughs> I mean, the, the reason we, why we started it is I do have a platform from The Bachelor and I wanted to use it for good. Um, I loved podcasting. I used to have a Bachelor recap podcast. And so um, I knew that I loved that. There is a woman in my lab. She's much more senior in the PhD than I am named Kibby, and she was interested in doing this with me. Um, and I just, you know, I mean, this is our area, so of course we're going to do a podcast on mental health. We're therapists. And, but when, you know, when we went to look at the market and what's already out there, it's, it's you know, a lot of kind of explaining what the disorder is, and it's it can be aimed at the person with the disorder. And there's not a lot at that looks at the, the loved ones of people with disorders and how difficult that can be. And that's a position that we find ourselves in more often than not. Um, I mean, for, for one thing, I mean, you know, I've, I've gone through depression, anxiety myself, but through 
my larger social circle, I have friends with other forms of anxiety, with personality disorders, with depression, who are suicidal, you know, have all these things. And I find myself in this position where I want to help them, but I don't always know how. Mm-hmm. And that's such a, that's such a helpless, frustrating, sometimes exhausting feeling. And so, you know, we talk about what the disorder is. A lot of times we talk about how it forms, why it forms. And then we talk about what you can do to help your friends and family, what different treatment looks like and what kinds of treatment you should be looking for. Cause that is another like hornet's nest. It's, it's so difficult to know who is a good therapist and what you should be looking out for. And so we cover that as well. And we also cover boundary setting and how to look out for yourself because a lot of times, you know, loving someone with a mental health disorder means you get mistreated and it's not a blame game. It's just that, you know, you're going to be better at helping them when you can help yourself first and and come from a more grounded, secure place. And so we try to give advice on and and tips and skill buildings on that. Yeah. I love that you do that. I think it's, it's so important and it's, I mean, I'm, I think I started my podcast with like, a, a niche of its own of just kind of opening up the conversation for vulnerability and mm-hmm. just sharing stories so that people could kind of more for those, you know, those suffer themselves of yeah. like, how can I, or like, Oh, listen to this person. Or like I had Matt James, for example, on my podcast, like, Oh, he dealt with X, Y, Z. And yeah. so like, I feel less bad about myself. I mean, that was a very generalization, but a uh, big generalization, but I really like how yours is aimed for those, who are loved ones because having or being someone who has battled every single like anxiety, depression, eating disorder, like you name it Mm -hmm. and seeing the toll it's taken on my parents and my sister Mm -hmm. has been really hard. And luckily I have an amazing support system of therapists who I work with to kind of talk it out with but at the same time I do look back in hindsight and and see the way that I treated my parents see the way I treated my sister and just think to myself like that wasn't me that was Mm -hmm. this beast of a you know what have you and for someone like my sister like it's really traumatized her and that, like I don't even say that word lightly I mean it's all of those little t traumas that have just added up and made it to the point of she doesn't talk to me because of oh gosh I I'm think, so sorry yeah I mean it's definitely something that we're like hopefully working on or will eventually work on but on one hand you know for me initially it was so frustrating but at the same time it's like I I understand now like has now that I've spoken to various, 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 um, and many psychiatrists, um, therapists and counselors and what have you, but it's, I think important to give people advice so that they never have to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And they know, as you said, kind of what the boundaries are and like what to say, but also, when to feel comfortable stepping back and letting a professional take in their own hands. Yeah. Well, first of all, 
I, I love what you're doing as well because what you're doing essentially is normalizing the conversation around it because there's mm-hmm. so much shame associated with mental health. And if you just hear people like Matt James or yourself talking mm-hmm. about like, look, this happened to me. It's going to happen to anyone. Um, and it looks different for everyone, but it also in some, in many ways looks the same. That's going to be super powerful. So, um, I, <laughs> you know, I love what you're doing too. Um, and yeah, I think especially siblings, it can be really difficult to see how mental health affects siblings because we're kind of used to, is she, is she younger or older than you? Yeah, she's younger. She's younger. Yeah, I was going to say, especially for older siblings, it can be really hard because for you, the family unit is often like the parents are who about me. They're who I look up to. They're who I take my cues from. Um, my my parents and my friends. And then younger siblings are often looking up also to the older siblings. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, and so older siblings often don't even know how they're, how they're affecting the development of their younger sibling. I'm a younger sibling, so I'm speaking from yeah. experience here. <laughs> um, but you know, we're we're not we're sometimes not always aware of like of even like lateral moves. Like um, like a sibling, you know, isn't the person that's supposed to be taking care of you, and so sometimes you're like not even thinking about how how they're affected. But um, yeah, I mean, I. I mean, boundary setting is super important. I think intervening with therapy as early as possible is always going to be a good answer with the caveat that there are a lot of bad therapists out there. And so you might have to do some shopping around and that's unfortunate, but, or they're just like therapists where it's just not a good natural fit. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are, there are little, you said little T traumas that affect us all in little ways and they can, um, they can make us feel like we don't have a right to be sad or upset necessarily because there's not a capital T trauma name for it. Mm-hmm. It's not always recognized. And the friends and family of people with mental disorders can often feel a lot of guilt and a lot of shame for not being able to help more or not wanting to help more, being totally worn out and exhausted because this person's calling constantly and it's the same conversation and can't do anything about it. Um, and so, you know, we just wanted a place to validate that as well. Yeah, I think that's so well said. And I think it's so interesting. It's almost like there's this like Chinese wall between us or something as in like those suffering and those who are loved ones of suffering because I only, you know, only after going to family therapy and working with a family therapist and speaking to my parents or hearing something, you know, accidentally – do I realize like, wow, my parents are freaking out about this. Like they're really worried, but they're not saying it directly to me. They're taking it to each other. And I think there's just, there's a lot, I mean, there's just so many levels to go into, but I think it's, again, A, good to normalize it and B, good to have either like a third party if you're you know, doing family therapy or just your own soundboard to speak to because they can provide a the expertise that they studied as well as you know saying like for me one thing that I I say to my um my parents and our family therapist etc is because I think my parents still worry about me like very understandably I say like you know I have a great support system and like if if anything if I'm not feeling good or I mean especially in like this pandemic you know, there's 
people who've never really thought twice about anxiety are starting to feel this like weird crippling sensation. So I'm like, I have, like, I will go to them. I promise you that. And don't, I mean, it's, it's hard to say don't worry, but just trust that, you know? Um, but having not had that clarity in the past, I can also see how it's a lot, it's really hard for them to just be like, okay, if you say so, <laughs> like, because, you know, in the past I would throw around things that I didn't mean, but it was, it was the depression talking, it was the anxiety talking, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I guess that was a really long segue into just what can loved ones do, you know, to support someone they know who may be suffering? And then at what point do they have to pass the baton? Yeah, it's a good question. It, it, it likely changes according to what's going on and what the disorder is. Um, I mean, you know, for something like an eating disorder, I would seek treatment immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, there's tons of, of, of shame associated with an eating disorder. If, if you've experienced this, then you know, oh, yeah. um, much, you know much better than I do. And that is one where the family system gets really disrupted right away because the parent's prerogative is to feed their child and to make sure their child is healthy and the child's prerogative is to not do that and this can get into battles really quickly and the battles are going to make the person with the eating disorder feel a whole lot worse and it, it yeah um so you know with something like you know i mean with something like depression or anxiety validation goes a really long way just instead of conflict and fighting just saying what you were going through makes sense even if it doesn't even if you don't think that they should feel that way they do because you see them as this beautiful smart wonderful person with so much to give and they see themselves as worthless or ugly or um like you know ineffective like they can't do anything um given what they're going through their thoughts and their behavior can often make a lot of sense. And so really trying to understand what's going through their mind and communicate that with them, literally just saying that makes sense. If you can really visualize it, you know, repeat back to them what you understand about what they're going through and saying, did I get that right? You know, does that land? Does that, is that how you're feeling? Really checking in and, and really making sure they know that you're listening and you're engaged and, um, you know, you don't have to agree with their actions or their behavior, but, you know, you can talk about that after you've kind of gotten that validation piece and trying to stay so non-judgmental, as non-judgmental as you can possibly be, because they're probably already experiencing a lot of shame and because judgment doesn't really get anybody very far. Um, so trying to take the edge out of your voice, trying to, to look from their perspective and get a conversation rolling and you know, showing up for them, being for, being there for them. But at a certain point, if you, if you're getting kind of abused, I mean, you know, I was in a relationship with someone who had separation anxiety disorder and it, it resulted in me getting pretty mistreated. Like I felt guilty every time I left the house. I didn't feel like I could hang out with other men. Um, I, I didn't feel like I could have my own life. And that's a point where it's like, there's no, there's nothing like, I can't fix this. I can't, I can't continue taking from myself to give to you. And so I 
I basically gave an ultimatum on the relationship. Like, you get treatment or I'm out. And Prozac helped a whole hell of a lot. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, you know, I mean, I think when your resources are being drained and you are afraid to pick up the phone, you are um, dreading, you know, dreading contact with them, you feel helpless, like, treatment is great because somebody is there to do it for you and to help for you. Another note is if we're thinking about something like depression, depression kind of has a talking problem where people really like to think and think and think in circles and they get into something called co-rumination, which is where they are ruminating, meaning that they are going over and over in their head, like what just happened in that scenario? Why did I fail so much? Who am I? Why am I so terrible? Just asking all of these unanswerable questions and then they'll take a friend and they'll make them do that with them. So if you, you know, and, and a lot of friends get sucked into this because they feel like they're being confided in and they feel very special in this relationship and they feel useful, like, oh, you know, I can, I can really connect with this person. And they're probably using a lot of validation. That's why the person's coming to them repeatedly to talk. But nothing, there's no movement. You know, you're just getting, you're just, everything you say, every suggestion is shot down. It's wall after wall after wall. That's a situation where it's not going to do anybody any good to keep talking. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it's, this is the depression talking. I believe in you. I believe you can get better. I understand that right now you feel like you can't do anything. You can't do anything right. But I will help you get treatment because there is a way out of this. And let's let's refocus our energies. Yeah, I think that's so true. And it really, you know, hits a personal spot because it's interesting. Like, I I mean, I definitely was guilty of co-rumination in the past. (laughs) Yeah, because it's it's easy to just, you know, think, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just venting. But in reality, it's a lot, a lot deeper and darker than that. But um, I think one thing that like I I still remember, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, granted, but I think it was the most helpful thing and it would be a, some I guess I don't know if advice is like the right word but it's a, along the lines of just communication being key um I think it was I want to say not too long ago but basically I my friend um I said I like wanted to chat with my friend and and she wasn't really answering and then finally she I think we were on the phone and she was like to be to be completely honest, I was a little nervous to talk to you because I've been going through something and I was worried that basically kind of saying like, I was worried that you were going to, you know, be bringing up sad thoughts, like bringing up things I would have brought up in the past. And like, luckily now, I mean, I've been on SSRIs for a while and I have that clarity to, see the goodness in that statement and see how honest she was being and how vulnerable she was being because that's not an easy thing to say to someone who has is very open about going through depression um and it also allowed me to be say wow like I didn't know that she was thinking that in the past like I didn't know that she was so worried to tell me that she was almost afraid to offer support just because it was like putting a burden on her, which I understand I was doing in the past. And my response in that moment was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I, I know I can, you know, 
I'm I wear my literally heart on my sleeve, my emotions on my sleeve, my my personality on my podcast. Um, and so just having that real honest dialogue with her, I think, I mean, we've already been best friends since the beginning of college, but I think it really took our relationship to a new level, just being able to really communicate, say, saying like, I'm here for you, but I also, you know, I'm going through my own things. And I think that's, I mean, it, it's definitely a difficult line to walk if especially if someone's in the depths of depression and they can't see the good intent but just the honesty behind the statement and saying like I'm here for you I validate what you're saying but I'm not a licensed professional and you know I can only do so much in setting that boundary in that way yeah I mean ultimately you can't be responsible for another person's happiness and I mean, your friend respected your friendship enough to say, this is the thing I need to tell you in order to move on because I want to move on. Um, but I'm not entirely sure how to mm-hmm. without sharing this. Um, and it, and you're right. Like you, you being in a presumably better place now, um, with the, with the SSRIs, which I, I totally think are an extremely legitimate and important part of treatment. Um, you know, you were able to hear that in, in, in a non-defensive way and really appreciate it and it is scary to say that to somebody who's deeply depressed I mean it is but at the same time you have to think about sometimes greater good or long-term good like if I continue to answer the phone from my suicidal friend and I continuously have to be on you know like on suicide watch and there's nothing I can realistically do other than send them to an inpatient unit or the ER, um, you know, like at some point I'm going to stop wanting to answer the phone Yeah, <laughs> and, and they're going to, they're going to lose another person. And so, and that's another situation where setting boundaries, like I, I can't, I can't have a three hour conversation with you about suicidality. I can't. Um, but what I can do is help you get help. I can, you know, if, if, if that, if you're open to help, I can, I can help you with that. And I would love to do that for you. But ultimately, I mean, it's important because these people need social support. They need friends. They need loved ones. And if you feel you're being pushed to the breaking point, then they're not doing anybody any good because suddenly they're about to lose someone else. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's scary. I mean, there's no, there's no one like piece of advice that I can give that's going to work every time, except try to get them into treatment (laughs) yeah and normalize it and I think like normalize it too which is hopefully I think what we're both doing or at least trying to do (laughs) yeah absolutely hey guys I just wanted to quickly tune in here because you know obviously this podcast is largely or in this episode largely about therapy and so I wanted to talk about better help because they have helped me so much in these past couple of months um like I'm not even just saying that I actually you know just signed up for another month um with the same therapist that I was initially signed to I absolutely love her and I really just couldn't recommend it enough if you are new to therapy or looking to try something a little bit different 
Um, I think BetterHelp is just such a great way to kind of dip your toes into the counseling world at such an affordable price. Um, I mean, I'm looking to save up money for for grad school, and I think this is the perfect solution considering I'm working from a place where I couldn't even technically legally work with a therapist in New York, but even if I did, it would cost a gazillion dollars. So um, for anyone doing something similar or just really anyone looking to become the best version of themselves and really just, you know, unpack this shit year. Um, I don't can't think of a better way to get started than with better help. So to get 10% off your first month, you can use my code. Um, so just go to trybetterhelp.com slash Zoe and you'll get 10% off your first month. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Like you won't regret it. Trybetterhelp.com slash Zoe for 10% off your first month. So on a completely different note, <laughs> and I obviously won't spend too much time talking about this because I think everything else you're doing in your life is a billion times more exciting, but you were on The Bachelor and I just have to know, why did you decide to go on? Oh, um, I actually, I mean, I still love talking about The Bachelor, so it's totally fine. Um, I went on because I, I had... I, I was kind of into Nick Vile, actually. And mm-hmm. when my friend saw that he was going to do The Bachelor, he nominated me for that season. I was too late. The nomination was too late. Um, so I wound up in Ari's season. But I, I mean, I just took it as a total joke. I'd been a fan of the show, but never in a million years would have nominated myself. Um, for a multitude of reasons, one of which I thought I would be way too scared. And I didn't think I'd be the type of woman that would be accepted onto the show or that would do well in the show. And, but once ABC called me, it was just like, it was this amazing challenge to grapple with in my life. And I I used to call it psychological skydiving. It's like, holy crap, I'm going to go on the show. I'm first of all, I'm going to like peek behind the velvet, the red velvet ropes of fame. Like nobody gets to do this. This is so unique. And I actually kind of liked that it was just a fame bubble, like a fame blip. Like in two years, I wouldn't be famous anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to see what that experience is like, and then I'm going to have to watch myself on TV and like see how I walk in heels and see mm-hmm. how I laugh and see how I kiss, which was terrifying. You know, all, like all of these things that I, I mean, most people are like afraid to hear their own voice. This is like everything up close. I was putting myself at the mercy of editors and producers and, um, I was just, you know, and, and then, and then I was going to get to see what it was like to have tens or hundreds or millions of followers, whatever the, whatever fate would give me and, and get a kind of new look at what people are like. And that was all super interesting. It also came with its own mental health challenges. I found the show kind of dramatic. Um, it was, yeah, it was not easy to go through, but I'm very glad I did it. Yeah, that's a, that was actually my next question was like, A, were you aware of, you know, the psychological manipulation that kind of went on behind the scenes with producers and things like that? And, or was it more like, so yeah, that's my first question. And then second, it, or it seems like it was kind of like a social experiment for you, which if I would ever be on it, like this, I'd feel the same. I'd be like, well, this would just be really interesting to see, you know, what really happens in terms of like whether it's quote unquote battling personalities versus 
producers using your weaknesses against you. Yeah. I was very paranoid about that. I had seen that show, Untrue or whatever it is. What's it? Do you know what it's? The one about the fake bachelor. Yeah, which is like very similar. I I haven't, but I read the book. um, I think it's called like The Final Rose or something by Amy Kaufman. Oh, it's no. The show is called Unreal. And then Amy Kaufman wrote the book. Okay, yeah. So I was very paranoid about that. And it's probably part of the reasons some of my airtime got cut was because I was very cautious. And I I had to be cautious because of what I wanted to do for my career. And so I just, I straight up could not be the super dramatic girl. I couldn't bitch about other girls. I couldn't say a lot of what I thought. Um, So that did protect me from a bad edit, but it also took away a lot of the airtime. Um... What was I? Okay, so there were a couple of times when I was aware I was being manipulated. But, I mean, for instance, when I was thinking about whether or not I wanted to break up with Ari, they, like, they were pushing me to do it before a rose ceremony, and they were like, you know, if you don't break up with him now, then other girls are going to go home. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically about Jenna, who was my one of my best friends on the show. And I was just like... I know what you're doing. I know, like, I know, I know that the connection I have with Ari is worth me thinking about for a few more days, more than it is like him, you know, like going forth with some relationships that they have, they, they just haven't progressed at all. And, um, but, and they, they, I feel like in the, be- in the beginning, I remember being really upset because I was pulled in into, into an interview when I was drunk and I cried. In general, though, I was not heavily manipulated. I think other women may have been. Mm-hmm. They can't make you do anything they do- you don't want to do, but what they can do is make you stay up all night and ask you the same question over and over and over again until you get frustrated enough that you say what they want you to say, which is pretty messed up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wasn't one of the central figures and... I think, like, I mean, I think there's basically two ways to go about the show. One is to end up, one is to win and end up with the lead, and that is a much more sort of genuine path to take. And I think if that's your path, they might leave you alone until maybe the end. Yeah. A little bit, because the other route is the airtime route, and that's where, I mean, there's a specific producer that's very good, that he's he's always given the more outspoken women, um, and he's very good at getting the right quotes. And if you're that route, you might get a bit more manipulated. Yeah, it's like, if you're, I guess, pursuing the follower route, the staying on till the final four or something... Versus knowing, you know, I don't have the connection with this guy or I don't have a connection with this girl. But I want to go on paradise and, you know, things like that. But could you, you mentioned that, like, there were other women who were manipulated. Did the empath in you and the, you know, the woman wanting to become a a psychologist, did that ever did you ever feel kind of conflicted just watching that happen when you okay they make it look like you fight for time with the bachelor but what actually happens is the bachelor is in a room where you you don't know where he is really and there's a camera crew around him whatever 
and then you're kind of taken by a producer or you go up to a producer and you're like I want time and then the producer will basically say like okay wait here or okay like I'll come grab you later and then you get your time so it's much more like taking turns but what can sometimes happen is that they will keep saying okay just wait a little bit longer I'll come grab you just wait just wait until time's up and then and this was in the beginning uh, there's a lot of sleep deprivation I'm not sure whether this is intentional or not it might be but also just sort of given the filming demands like you just don't sleep but I I mean I don't know like I'm still good friends with a couple of the producers and I had a great time I had a great time filming the show like no complaints and, and but I just I don't think I was a person that they were really targeting I, I guess I would also say though that I was kind of in survival mode myself like I was I was try, I was thinking about how to not get manipulated myself and mm-hmm. it was a competition and so I don't know how many like uh, I, I don't remember whether I was super empathic towards others or not to be totally honest I felt very like a fish out of water I felt like I didn't belong in the group of women until later when I developed a lot more comfort and so I, I feel like I was kind of in my shell and a little bit self-protective yeah which makes sense and also I think is necessary to not be in that spot of manipulation because I mean I think they're better about it now but I remember meeting reading the Amy Coffin book and just reading like I mean who knows I'm I guess that was written a while ago. I know Claire Crawley was like interviewed for it, which is kind of funny in retrospect. But um, I just remember like reading that, you know, if they say, oh, this person gets really upset when you bring up like like this trauma or this trauma and being, especially now in hindsight, like knowing I want to go into that field is like scary and thinking back to how emotional I'd get it. Like, I don't know, seeing like a YouTube video. I'm like, I would not last two days, but (laughs) it's so, yeah, it's uh, definitely just that another reason that the bachelor is so fascinating to me is like the psychological element. Hi guys, really quick. I wanted to talk about Saqqara because they are another one of my incredible sponsors. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you are going to be with family or loved ones for the holidays, in which case, um, if you're lucky, you've got some really great food coming up in these next couple of days and weeks. Uh, but if you're like me and you're spending the holidays alone, don't really want to cook for yourself, don't really want to go shopping for yourself, Sakara is there for you. They're going to be my, you know, Christmas Eve dinner, and I'm really excited about it, um, to be honest, because it's the food's delicious. So... Um, but even if you are spending time with your loved ones for the holidays and, you know, there's that like awkward time between Christmas and New Year's where you're like, it's still 2020. Can we just get this shit over with? Like what year is it? What day is it? And I don't want to go food shopping because I have a week of, you know, potentially going out every so often or whatever. Um, again, Sakara is a great option. So I have such a great offer for everyone listening to this podcast. You can get 20% off your first purchase by using the code XOZOE at checkout. So just go to Sakara.com, pick whatever you want, use the code XOZOE at checkout for 20% off your order. Okay, back to the episode with Jacqueline. Um, but anyways, I always wrap up by asking a few questions that are unrelated to really anything we've talked about, but I think I just, um, I think they share a little bit about the, the guests. So sure. the first question is, 
What's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today? Oh, God. Well, The Bachelor probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I would say The Bachelor and depression. So those are the two things that we talked about True. already. True. <laughs> Next question is, do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by? Um, yeah. It's kind of long, though. Um, let me see if I can get a, a, a shorter version. Okay. It is, we were born of risen apes, not, fall, not fallen angels, and the apes were armed killers besides. And so what shall we wonder at? Our murders and massacres and missiles and our irreconcilable regiments? Or our treaties, whatever they may be worth? Our symphonies, however seldom they may be played? Our peaceful acres, however frequently they may be converted to battlefields? Our dreams, however rarely they may be accomplished? The miracle of man is not how far he has sunk, but how magnificently he has risen. We are known among the stars by our poems, not our corpses. I just like how it's basically like we're animals at the end of the day and we have done some miraculous, beautiful things. And so, and I think right now, especially we look for the evil in people and we are very unforgiving. And um, I I think it's a a much better, healthier, Mm -hmm. or just, I don't know, it makes me feel better to look on life as everybody has good in them and our species has a whole hell of a lot of good in it and a lot of beauty. Oh, I love that. That's such a beautiful quote. I know. Is it like a poem? I don't know. I just came across it somewhere. I think in like a, I think in another, another book it quoted it or something. I've always loved it though. Oh, I love that. Do you believe everything happens for a reason? No. Um, no. But I mean, I think looking back, I'm someone who like, I don't really believe in regrets because, you know, butterfly effect and all that and so you can you can always find the reason in anything that happens yeah that's exactly what I say (laughs) like reframe of the word or reframe of the phrase um what do you love most about yourself oh that's a nice question um I think I like how oh I've always liked how thoughtful I am but I think recently, and especially after The Bachelor, but a few years prior, I've liked how bold I am. I'm, I'm kind of like an exposure therapy woman who, whenever I'm scared of something, I make myself do it. And um, I, I don't know, I think that's taken me really far in life. And now I can look back on my life and see a lot of really awesome experiences that I'm going to be proud of and remember forever. I love that. When's your birthday, by the way? It's June 12th. I'm a Gemini. Oh, interesting. I get along really well with Geminis, but <laughs> I wouldn't have pegged you as one. Granted, I don't know much about astrology. I just think it's interesting to um, bring up. <laughs> um, but anyway, the last question, which is the name of the podcast, how do you find solace in the city? Which is, you know, city can be whatever you want it to be. I loved New York City, so I'm going to go with New York City for this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I know it sounded like you had a tough first year. I was lucky that I had some friends built in that helped me experience new things. I would say say yes to as many things as possible. Um, even if someone doesn't seem like the typical person you would hang out with, just try it. Jump on the dating app, whatever. Um, say yes to new opportunities. Go to that party, even as the weirder the party, the better, like, go. I, I just, there's just so much to do and so much to experience. And I think if you say no 
to these things, it can be really easy to feel very alone and feel very cramped. Um, and yeah, I mean, every experience leads to another experience. Every, every friend, every connection, even if you don't like that first person, like leads to someone else. So just get out. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I found that. And once I kind of pulled myself out of the, um, of the bell jar, so to speak, (laughs) I definitely, uh, found that just exact situation where I was, I mean, some of my closest friends now are those who I've met through the podcast and those who I've met through others through the podcast. And it's like, um, yeah. And then for that reason in itself, I miss New York a lot, but I'll be back. Um, but Jacqueline, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. I think you're such a beautiful person both inside and out. And I just really appreciate what you're doing for the mental health community. And I'm excited to, you know, continue listening to your podcast. Where can everyone follow you? Tune in to, you know, you and Kibby. Um, just plug everything. Sure. So, um, so first of all, our podcast is on all the major podcasting places. So Spotify, Apple, Google, etc. And it's a little help for our friends. Um, my Instagram handle is at Trumbolina, so T-R-U-M-B-U-L-L-I-N-A. My first ever love called me Trombolina. So <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've kept it. Um, it that's works. my Instagram and Twitter. And um, thank you so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and um, I also love what you're doing for mental health. So thank you so much for normalizing it and having the courage to talk about it. Um, I'm so sorry you've been through so much, but helping other people, and that's the best use of that time I can think of. Um, and, and yeah, good luck with all your applications to social worker programs, too. Thanks. Yeah, it's exciting, but uh, I definitely need to get them in. <laughs> <laughs> the <deadlines. laughs>